Hello, product people. Welcome to The Product Perspective, where we discuss product management and development with those at the forefront of building, managing, and maintaining a perfect product fit in five questions. Strap in and let's go. Welcome to The Product Perspective. Today, we have a power-packed episode lined up for you featuring two incredible guests who are at the forefront of driving positive change through their expertise. Our first guest, Eric Ressler, a visionary leader and the founder and creative director at Cosmic, a creative agency that empowers social impact organizations to refine their impact stories, enhance brand awareness and inspire meaningful action. Eric's journey from a young design enthusiast to a visionary in the social impact space is truly inspiring. His understanding of the intersection between design, impact and communication has led him to revolutionize how organizations in this sector navigate the ever-evolving landscape. And that's not all. Joining Eric is Cosmic's technical director, Neil Rudd, a seasoned consultant and a true advocate for innovative development strategies. Neil's belief in the power of collaboration and continuous learning has shaped his approach to every project he takes on. His experience as a consultant has honed his ability to demystify complex concepts, making them accessible to audiences of all backgrounds. Today's episode is all about a crucial intersection, the relationship between design agencies and social impact organizations specifically we'll be delving into the significance of user feedback in this dynamic landscape so sit back relax and let's get started welcome eric welcome neil it's great to have you on board eric are you able to tell us a little bit more about cosmic and, and how you got into the space sure so cosmic started out of a freelance business of me doing design and development work out of a co-working space Really, I was I was young, ambitious, and just kind of cutting my teeth and just excited to be paid to do what I loved. And over time, got quite busy and all of a sudden grew into a nine-person design agency, which is where we find ourselves today. We've been bigger. We've been a little bit smaller. This kind of nine-person, roughly team size, feels like a really good fit for the kind of work that we like to do. We like to stay nimble, bespoke, and high touch with our clients, and this size allows us to do that. When we first started, really, we were, as I mentioned, just kind of excited to do everything for everyone for the most part. And I think that's a great way to start. But over time, we realized we needed to kind of hone our own positioning and our own expertise and focus a little bit. And so about seven years ago now, we decided to kind of put a stake in the ground around the social impact sector and really focus our efforts there. And ever since, we've just been even more deeply committed to it. Yeah, I think agencies are a dime a dozen and it's hard to stand out, especially if you're not in that really top tier in agency land. So having, I guess, serving a niche like the social impact space, that's that's really great. And I guess you also have that feeling of you're helping as well organizations that are helping others and being involved in the community. Yeah, and I think as we were looking at options for how to position We've always liked to work quite holistically. So for us, like focusing on just a particular discipline, like only doing branding or only doing email or only doing paid or something like that just felt really counter to our our philosophy as a design agency. And so pretty quickly, we, we decided, okay, we needed to find a niche, an industry or a sector to focus on. And we kept kind of describing this social impact space in different ways. Like we want to do community-based work or we want to do human work or lifestyle work or we we didn't quite know how to describe it. And even the term social impact at the time wasn't very popular. Now it's kind of over the years become kind of the de facto way to describe this sector. 
especially because it does comprise of more than just nonprofits. It's nonprofits, it's B Corps, it's social enterprises, it's funders, it's government organizations too. It's organizations that exist to do good at their core, not as a kind of like CSR uh, initiative or some kind of give back or cause marketing campaign. It's why the organization exists. And so, yeah, I mean, we saw a lot of potential. Frankly, we saw the bar was really low in terms of the, the creative and the brand and the digital experiences, especially at the time. And there's a lot of reasons for that that we can get into and unpack. But we've been really excited to be part of hopefully raising that bar and starting to see a lot more interest from other agencies and other creatives and folks outside of the social impact space kind of rethinking their priorities and focusing their efforts on the space. Yep, and you cover, uh, I guess, the full spectrum of agency work from branding through to design and building sites and applications. Yeah, we try to stay pretty holistic and you know, we'll we'll let Neil kind of talk about the tactical side here in a minute, but we've been pretty bullish on integrating digital and development into our shop from the beginning and really kind of honing that expertise within our team. We've found that a lot of branding agencies will kind of, you know, offshore or hand off or contract the development work and we just see that as being pretty counter to delivering exceptional experiences is really hard to do that in our experience. And so that's been a huge part of our growth and tra trajectory and kind of our ethos at Cosmic as well. There's some niche stuff we don't do, like we used to do full on photo and video production, but that's its own business. And we found that we're a little better, even though a, a number of us are film geeks and come from like a film background, it's better to kind of bring on the right production house for individual projects and just kind of play the role of uh, an agency in that sense versus trying to do the full production. There's other niche things like that, but we try and do as much as we can in-house. That's where we really shine. Yeah, I think you're right. And not-for-profits and social enterprises, they all have their own really unique needs and goals. So as a specialized digital developer for that type of organization, how do you align their needs with modern website development and web application development? Neil, you want to take that one? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the time people come to us and really the first thing we need to do is identify like what exactly it is we're trying to achieve. And once that is outlined, then we can sort of look at where the opportunities are and where these modern tools can come in and address those needs. A lot of the time we're also looking at not just like all right, we're going to we're going to go in, we're going to build this website, we're going to get out. It's also about teaching the client how to like own the tools uh, once we're done with our scope of work so that they're also trained up and have a little bit of vocabulary to navigate that space, not in the sense of like, okay, we're expecting you to like code your own website <laughs> at this point, but at least be able to like pivot and use the tools um, as needed and as their needs change. Yeah, and do you find that the organizations you work with, they come in fairly well prepared or do they are they just sort of trying to find their feet and they rely on you a lot more for that? It varies pretty broadly. So sometimes we'll get people come in and they basically like they used to do their website in-house and really what they're trying to do is get up to that next level and have us train up their team to the next level and build out something with them. Then there's the other end of the spectrum where somebody comes in and they are in charge of the website and 
there part-time and got put in charge of the website because they write the newsletter. And figuring out early on kind of like where the client skill set is and where we need to allocate our time with them is a really important part of the process. Yeah, that's, I can, I've actually been on both of those sides of the table where, you know, a website's been managed by an agency, but also where the website was managed in-house and it's just kind of on the developer to build and maintain the website. And whenever there's content that needs to be added, you know, it has to be scheduled in with them and they have to add it. And it's great because you have this unlimited flexibility of, I can do anything because a developer's managing the website in-house to having that built by a third party, um, an agency, and there's design and development done, and then you're in a CMS. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you've lost a whole bunch of things that you used to be able to do before. But you're, I guess, on the flip side, you're gaining that efficiency of the developer's time can be spent doing things they're supposed to be doing. And you now can be managing and updating content on the site and making small changes. You might not have all the flexibility that you had, but yeah, been on both sides and uh, they both have, I guess, their pros and cons. Yeah. And like in that same regard, we're always looking at where the balance is there of Mm. like, where do we give our clients the flexibility to quote, do whatever versus like fit into kind of these, we use this approach now, which we call the page builder approach, where we build out all these different components that they can use in their site and lay them out generally, however they want. There's a few limitations here and there based on the type page they're on or things like that. But then there's, you know, the vast majority of our clients then will come back to us when there's new features that need to get built out. Um, We have a handful of clients, though, that do have in-house development, and we'll actually hand over our code base and recommended, you know, code deployment strategies and stuff. Not everybody goes through all those checks and balances, but we also do hand over, like, when the client has the team to support it, the system for them to go in and run with it and edit the code and everything themselves, because they sometimes they just don't have the capacity to build out a new site, but they have the capacity to kind of run with it. Yeah, I like that approach. I, many, many years ago, used to work for a um, email service provider here in Australia, and uh, we had a very small design I guess, service that we offered where we would design email templates uh, for our customers. And the approach we used to take was because it's going into a template and you can kind of add and remove things like email marketing template. And then uh, what we would do is we say, let's think about all of the different types of content that you'll have in your email newsletter or whatever type of email you're sending out. And let's build components for that email newsletter that you can use over time so that you're not, you don't feel constrained to what you have. So they might I mean, um, emails come a long way, but it would have been like a two-column component or a an image on the right, an image on the left, a table, uh, things like that. And you know, they would some of them would have an email template with say fifteen different layouts because that's what they wanted at the time, and they would then remove the ones they don't want and then come back to us if they want a new component designed. Um, it works really well because you feel less constrained. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think generally we're talking about design systems here, really, right? And so, that's right, yeah. and that's the way we think about it. Our clients maybe don't always know that's what they're getting, right? They just think that they're they're getting this custom site and this series of components they can use. But I think really the way that we approach it is through this lens of design systems and kind of building out component libraries so that there's a system, but there's flexibility within the system so that it can scale, it can grow, it can evolve over time, but still maintain an overall cohesive experience for the end user. 
Yeah. So I guess before we were talking about the levels of technical expertise and then building out those design systems, how do you ensure the inclusivity of, I guess, that feedback process and QA throughout the build and design part and, and even after something's been delivered to the client? Yeah. I mean, in certain ways, this is actually where user back has been super helpful. And this has honestly been something that we've been iterating on at Cosmic over the years. And in general, we run sprints with clients. And so even though we're not a full agile shop, we do weekly sprints, we review stuff, we demo stuff. We've really been trying to bring in QA and user testing into our process basically from the beginning. So as soon as we have um, some functional prototypes or functional code, we'll get our clients reviewing those, looking at those um, you know, in various browsers and just testing things out. Because as much as we can produce you know, really solid wireframes, really solid high fidelity designs in Figma, even do some basic prototyping without code, until the end user and, and our client even is actually using the site, it can be like you know, a quote unquote pixel perfect implementation, but until they can like touch it and play with it and click it and interact with it, especially if it's a more immersive experience, it's impossible to like fully test something, right? It's still yeah. essentially just like a crude drawing of the website, even if it is a high fidelity design. So, you know, we used to have our QA process be kind of like the end step in our process. Like we would do our own internal QA as we were building stuff. We'd do our own internal user testing as we were building stuff. And then at the end, the client would kind of have a little bit of a, you know, a week or two to kind of poke around, do final like touch-ups, give us final feedback. And then we would implement that and launch the site. And what we found is that it was just too risky to run projects that way. We weren't giving the client enough time to play with things, we didn't have enough time to actually address feedback that we were getting. So, you know, over the last, I guess, say maybe like a few years, we've been running a much more kind of integrated user testing and QA process where we're doing that weekly. So we, as soon as we're sending over initial, you know, uh, prototypes or sections of the site that are functional, clients are getting a user back link. They're entering stuff into the user back portal. We used to do this with spreadsheets. Um, and what we found, and I'm sure we'll get to this more in, in more detail, is that we were just getting really bad QA reports from clients and it wasn't their fault. There was just too much friction. And even internally, there was too much friction. And so being able to actually just reduce that friction and have like a consolidated place where people could see like who reported things, have a place to actually like go back and forth and dialogue on things that were happening. It's been like truly transformative in terms of like the quality of the QA and the user testing that we're getting back from clients and even from end users. But even internally, we've been using user back for our own internal QA and user testing rather than you know, Asana, which is like our main source of truth for project management and running projects, there's still too much friction to kind of putting in, you know, user reports into Asana that's decoupled from the instance of the actual site. So I think that's been like the main shift is like just more deeply integrating it into our process as like a core thread versus this kind of step that happens towards the end before a launch. Yeah, that shift of going from end of, I guess, your your finished site design from your perspective and it's ready for QA and giving a client a couple of weeks to play around, that shift from going, I guess, that process, shifting to including them throughout the build, um, even though things might not be ready yet and you're just kind of building components out um, or specific um, site layouts and 
including them through that process, I can only imagine that the end result that they're getting is so much better than what they were before. The end result and like the client experience and our experience too is like so much better because it just doesn't feel so rushed or so dire. So our launches are significantly less stressful. We used to get, you know, launch week, week before launch was this huge push. You know, it's always a bit of a push still, you know, just being honest, like there's never going to be a launch that's just like perfectly smooth sailing. But the amount of stress and fear around launch for us and for clients has diminished greatly as we've been including that. And I think it's part tool, user back and also part process and what the tool has allowed us to do is to integrate it more holistically into the project. So we're getting those bits of feedback along the way earlier on as the project is going, instead of getting this huge list of things that we just don't even have time to tackle all of them. And then we're getting into kind of like a triage mode, like what's a launch blocker versus what's not. It's like, well, we don't even want to have to have those conversations. We want this to just be awesome. So yeah, we can talk more about like specifics of how that works, but that's been, it's not just the quality, but the experience for both us and for the client has been like greatly improved, I would say. So what does that overall success look like in terms of the impact to the organization? If you can compare old world to new world? I think it is really in those two categories, like quality of output. So like what our digital experiences look like day one of launch compared to what they looked like a few years ago. Just the level of like perfection and detail of user experience and, you know, lack of bugs, lack of issues with functionality. Like things just work better, things look better, things are snappier, the experience is just better because we've been able to kind of refine the little details along the way instead of just like building out core functionality. So like that, the just like the sheer level of quality has improved. And then that other bucket of experience, like the experience for us is so much better and less stressful. The experience for the client, the experience for the community that they're building the site for, the digital experience for is just elevated because we've had the time and the process to build it as effectively as possible instead of just like kind of getting the core things done and then getting back a bunch of user reports of things that aren't functioning the way that we expected them to. I don't know, Neil, do you have other thoughts? Yeah, I was going to say the other thing that just kind of came to mind here is that it's also really allowed us to dry up the process or do not repeat yourself, both for us as the implementers and for our clients as like, you know, as they're doing their QA, because we would have this spreadsheet where we would have a column for notes, have a column for a what's my browser link, which um, is just like a website where you can go and it spits out information about your browser. So we would have columns for all these things. And every single time we'd be making people go through it. And then we would take those tasks, we'd have to figure or we'd take those reports, figure out what's going on, turn them into tasks. What userback has allowed us to do is automatic browser data collection, as long as they're reporting through the widget. We can actually also then see the console log and all that sort of stuff. And then on our end, instead of having to go and like gather all this information again a second time and try and get replication steps, a lot of that information is already there. Of course, like some of those things we're always going to have to kind of track down or if if the report itself is kind of like lacking detail, we'll need to follow up and there's, there's no substitute for constant communication. Like we have a regular meeting once a week with our clients at the end of a sprint where we can talk through anything that didn't quite that needs that second level of conversation around it because communication and conversation is just irreplaceable ultimately 
but it's really helped us bridge the divide both for like that process being super frustrating for us and for the client and in terms of like getting more information than we used to get with honestly like a quarter as much work. Yeah. The way I look at that is a small process change and some improvement in tooling. Um, I mean, let's face it, a lot of people are still using spreadsheets for all different kinds of processes that spreadsheets weren't realistically designed to be helping with, but they kind of, it's what they default to because it's what they know. That small change in your business, the impact of that to the client at the other end is resulting in you know less frustration and stress on, on their side and your side as well, but then greater client retention, better relationship referrals, which is is good for everyone. Yeah, I think one of the things that we kind of realized but didn't realize the extent of the issue was just around like the friction of the QA process for everyone involved, like especially for clients. Like we would sometimes ask clients to in order to be able to like reproduce an issue they were having to record a screencast of what they were doing. And like for some clients that was no big deal and for other clients that was like a whole learning experience. Like they'd never done that before. They weren't set up to do that. Then they record the screencast and like the video is too big to send through email or through, even through Basecamp. So then they have to like learn how to upload it to Vimeo or YouTube. Like that's a lot to do just to report a bug. And so like some of these like features that are built into user back are just really about reducing friction of reporting. And that has like an outsized impact on the overall effectiveness of the workflow and the end result. I mean, kind of an interesting story about this is like we've started to use user back for our own website to like track our own issues. I used to find myself finding small things, but important things on our site that like needed some work, but the friction of reporting them, even just like putting it into Asana, recording the screencast. And you know, I'm a fairly technical person, like to record a screencast is no big deal for me, but even that amount of friction would sometimes stop me from even reporting it just because I didn't have time or just like, is it really worth doing this reporting? Like, do I care that much about this small thing? But you know, with digital experiences and in general with creative work, the small details matter so much and just reducing that friction for better or for worse, I'm reporting more bugs on our own site, <laughs> which I'm sure the dev team loves. But um, you know, I think that speaks to that experience is just multiplied when we're up against like a big launch and we're asking clients who, you know, don't do this every day or maybe you've never even done this ever before, giving like empowering them to be able to report things that they see, to do that with ease, to know that it's being reported and they can see that it's reported. Like that experience is just so much better. Yeah, I think it comes to like that improvement in collaboration between uh, you sitting there with receiving the feedback on the work you're doing and the client giving feedback. So how do you see technology and tools like user back and feedback um, tooling shaping the future of that client collaboration piece um, in the social impact space? I mean, I can speak to some of the bigger trends and then Neil, feel free to chime in. I mean, I think one big trend, and this was definitely supercharged with COVID, is just like digital transformation in general has been rapidly accelerating. And so even just especially in the social impact space, the openness to nonprofits, to leveraging technology, to leveraging platforms, to investing in branding and, and marketing and digital experiences, like it's just such a more common thing to see these days, which is great. That's where the trend should be going. I think we used to see just in digital in general, more kind of like monolithic systems, systems that kind of did it all. And now what we're seeing is I think a, a beneficial kind of fragmentation where there's more specialized tools. 
So we use probably 25 random platforms at Cosmic to do very specialized things. And there's pros and cons to all of that. But even our development philosophy is based on the Jamstack, where we're really leveraging these specialized tools and integrating them into a consolidated front-end experience. And so instead of having like a monolithic WordPress install, we have a CMS, and then we have our front-end built in React, and then we have other systems that we're pulling from to get that content. So rather than being tied to one, you know, monolithic system or comprehensive system that's trying to do everything but doesn't do any of it all that great, we can use these specialized tools that are kind of built for a very particular use case and just like really nail that. And so I think that's just like a bigger trend we're seeing in general around how tools and technology are being kind of integrated into building experiences like this. Yeah, so given that you ha you have a lot of tools there, have you been caught up in the consolidate and find within your your tech stack what tools you're already using that you know kind of solve the use case or the purpose of another tool, um, but it might not do it as well as that dedicated tool and and looking to consolidate across your tech stack. I'd say it's a constant ebb and flow. Like we're constantly adding and shedding and and refining tools each year as we you know have a need for them, and so. It is painful sometimes looking at our monthly bill of tools and not even just the bill, but just like the fragmentation of information. So that's kind of the that's the downside to these specialized tools is there's a tool for everything. So you have to go here mm -hmm. for this information and here for this. I think generally people are trying to understand that and like integrations between tools and like APIs and webhooks and all of these like ways that we can kind of consolidate information are improving and becoming kind of more standard. Uh, there's definitely still some room for improvement there. But I would say like we have, at least at Cosmic, we have a series of specialized tools that each have a very intentional purpose. And we're always looking at, are we using too many tools? Are there tools we can shed? Are there tools we can consolidate? Are there tools that are missing? And that's honestly kind of a like annual thing that we're doing. Yeah, I think for us here at Userback, the biggest challenge we face is um, some of the tools that we implement. Um, you know, they're big hitting tools. More recently, we implemented, well, almost 12 months ago now, we implemented HubSpot as our CRM platform. As part of that, we consolidated our help center and live chat um, bots and and all of those sort of workflow tooling through Intercom, which we were using for maybe two years. And we consolidated everything into HubSpot. And then you slowly start to realize that, you know, promise at the front end to what the tooling can actually deliver when you're using it doesn't always align. And we've definitely seen that across some of the tools that we've started using. And, you know, we may commit to a, an annual license on a tool. And now I think we're sort of more cautious of that and go, well, actually, we'll just commit to a month or two and see if we can get an MVP implemented and then see what it's like and if we want to commit if we're happy with it let's then roll into an annual contract after that yeah we're also on hubspot and i think you know hubspot luckily does a very good job with integrations and so for example like hubspot has a meeting booking tool built in that's essentially like a calendly clone yep. but it's not quite as robust as calendly so yep. you know now we have calendly for meetings but it integrates with hubspot in a good way so at least that data we get from calendly goes into hubspot we can like integrate it into our workflows in an intelligent way so i think that's really the future is like these specialized tools that have like really solid integration so that you can kind of build your own ecosystem over time. I don't know. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, Neil. Yeah. In our actual workflow, one of the things that we do early on in a project where we're doing a more comprehensive digital project is we build what's called a tech strategic plan that looks at all the systems that a client is currently using, what the goals are, and then how we can achieve those goals. 
And in that process, we look at their appetite for using a litany of services or needing to go with a monolithic service, what their budget is, and all those different factors. We're often able to justify, yeah, use the best tool for the job as much as possible. When there are cases where, all right, you you know, you really should use this tool, but your budget's not there yet, or you don't have the staff capacity to really like take on this particular avenue of marketing or digital work. It's really one of the things that we really stress is it's important to think ahead and to build out the tools that you are going to use so that you're future-minded and that data could be migrated to something else or your data structures are set up so that, yeah, they could be migrated over to another tool. Because often, I mean, when we work with organizations, they're at all different levels of seniority or development. So if it's an organization that's just getting started, they're probably not going to have the budget for the HubSpot suite top level or HubSpot at all. So it's like, all right, here's, you know, get started with MailChimp, make sure you're capturing this other information in addition to email address so that you're able to leverage it in the future once you have the staff, once you have the budget and those sorts of things. Beyond kind of like, what is it, you know, what tools should people be looking at? It's also about make sure you understand what the trajectory is long-term so that you're able to plan accordingly and you're not kicking yourself in four years for not at least getting started on collecting that data or doing the prep work so that you're able to fully leverage something once you're able to invest in it. Yep. Thank goodness for MailChimp. <laughs> Getting everyone out of the spreadsheet. And yeah, yeah. The data migration problem. piece, though, is a huge one that often gets forgotten. Like we just wrapped up a project uh, with a client that has an e-commerce store and they had been running their store for 15 plus years out of FileMaker. And unfortunately, their data, you know, was not very well maintained and cleansed and kept up to date over time. So that when you're making these platform choices, like oftentimes, like you're thinking about your immediate pain points, but you have to kind of stop and think about what happens in like a year or three years or five years if we want to like migrate out or like build a custom solution for this. Like, will we be able to actually even get our data out of this system? And how painful is that going to be? I mean, we do a lot of data migration from old, not well maintained WordPress websites, and like that can be a massive pain if we're, you know, migrating 10 years, sometimes 20 years worth of like blog posts from WordPress, but the way that it was set up is like not consistent across post types or something. And it's like, the, it's like this invisible technical debt that most people don't even know is building up over time that Neil and our dev team get to figure out how to solve. But that's something we're always looking at when we're making platform choices is like, A, is the organization like iterating quickly? Like, are they building new features? quickly are they you know transparent about their roadmap are they clear about their purpose are they trying to kind of overreach and like do more than like their specialized purpose as an organization like how open is it is there an api are there developer docs like who owns the data how how does data get in and out like those are the kind of things we generally look at at a high level when we're assessing different platforms and technologies yeah and i think that flows on to my final question which is um, as you continue to assist socially conscious clients what advice can you offer to fellow agencies striving to facilitate meaningful collaboration and feedback within that unique landscape? I mean, I think every agency is going to have to find their own approach. And, you know, agencies do a lot of different things. I think agencies like ours who are focused on design and digital will probably have their own kind of way of doing this. And I think if I could give myself advice 
10 years ago when we were first getting started on a lot of this, I think some of our processes, even more so than our tools, frankly, like tools help, but they really just support processes about being like truly collaborative and transparent and inclusive with clients instead of this like traditional way, this kind of old school way of doing design and development, this kind of madman waterfall approach of like, okay, you give us the assignment and the project specs and we're going to go away for six months and then unveil this like perfect thing. Like that's not how good experiences get built. It's not even how good brands get built anymore. And so really including the client and making sure the client understands that they need to be involved, they need to be collaborative, that they can't just hire this out and like forget about it until it's done and then rubber stamp it. Like that's just not how it works. So processes and tools that enable like deeper collaboration are the ones that you should prioritize. Yeah, I think I know not all this doesn't isn't a blanket statement for all agencies, but I think that traditionally you've got your design team and a lot of those designers, you know, they're just striving for excellence all the time. And sometimes that I guess that ego gets in the way. And that's why they kind of hold things really close to their chest because it's not ready yet. But then if you you get so emotionally attached to the work that you've done that when you go and deliver it to someone and it, you know, it might meet the brief and it might be amazing for the client. But if that off chance that it doesn't meet the brief perfectly for the client and they provide some level of feedback or say, oh, look, I really don't like this. And that age old agency joke of make the logo bigger. It's like it hits deep for the design team. And it just really from there, it starts to break the process down and the relationship it gets, as we were talking about earlier, it gets really stressful and painful. Yeah, definitely. And I think like you could even reframe that as risk, right? Like if you're thinking about yeah. like, project management, like doing too much without getting either client feedback or even end user feedback is risky, right? Because you're going down this path. And if that path ends up being wrong, for whatever reason, now you have to backtrack and backtracking is expensive for everyone. One of the ways that we think about sprints is like, if we're wrong ever, for whatever reason, and sometimes we are, everyone is, we're only a week wrong, right? So we can easily just like, okay, reverse for a week and then like continue on. And so like, I think a lot of how we frame project management and running projects is about like risk mitigation. And, and like part of that is like constant collaboration and demoing actual progress to clients from the beginning. You know, other things are doing the hard parts first, like bringing those things up, de-risking stuff that is uh, will work in theory, but we've never tried. So like prototyping, that kind of stuff. So a lot of these things are just best practices for product design and development, you know, inspired by design thinking and lean startup methodologies. And like, you know, we kind of pull from all these different frameworks, but I think a lot of it actually kind of comes down to risk management. Yeah, a lot of organizations are adverse to layering on new process and I guess operationally sometimes it doesn't make sense but someone once told me that in your business processes will set you free and if, if you can nail the right processes for your business and in this case you know operationalizing that whole process and involving the client throughout definitely makes a big impact. Yeah, we've seen it for sure. And I think it really just supports in general, especially I think this is relevant to the social impact sector that end user feedback. And, you know, um, we're writing an article right now about digital equity and accessibility, like all of that requires input from the right people at the right time and tools like user back and other tools that can improve that reduce the friction of that can have like a really, really helpful impact on the way the project goes, but the end result of the experience that you're building too. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's, um, that's all that we have for today. Thank you, Eric. Um, thank you, Neil. It's been a pleasure having you. Thanks for having us on.
And that wraps up another insightful episode of The Product Perspective. We've covered a range of topics from the significance of user feedback in making a social impact to the role of design in crafting meaningful experiences. I hope you now have a better understanding of how user feedback drives positive change and the key role played by collaboration, communication, and inclusivity in creating impactful digital experiences. So let's keep these takeaways in mind and continue striving for greatness together. If you'd like to hear more from product people like Eric and Neil with me, subscribe to the podcast and feel free to get in touch with me with questions or suggestions for the pod on letstalk at userback.io. Until the next time, bye for now.